I'm Ashley Nassel. And I'm Amy Young. And you're listening to Prize Fighting Kangaroo, a podcast about film and culture from the Valley of the Sun. This episode of Prize Fighting Kangaroo is brought to you by Apache Tattoo in Chandler, Arizona. Whether you're ready to proclaim your force affiliation with a Death Star tattoo, or finally ready to immortalize your love of Harry Potter with a golden snitch, Apache Tattoo can help you bring your movie love to life with living art. Or you can always get the kangaroo with boxing gloves to show your love for prize-fighting kangaroo. Not saying you have to, just saying maybe think about it. Follow Apache Tattoo on Instagram at Apache underscore tattoo or call 480-899-0847 to book your appointment today and support the businesses that support the arts. And for uh, new listeners joining us wondering who are these assholes, uh, we're both cultural writers and journalists that live in Phoenix. I've written for Phoenix New Times, Bandcamp, Pitchfork, and Vice. I've written for a bunch of spots like that, too, but not all of them. Uh, they do include Phoenix New Times, Phoenix Magazine, Java Magazine, Echo Magazine, uh, and some that are also outside of town. Also, Amy's the editor at Echo Magazine now. That's right. <laughs> also joining us, as always, is our producer extraordinaire, Devin. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> We're so happy to see you. It's good to be back. You're going to talk about movies with us today. Hells yes. So folks, uh, today since we're coming up on 2019, so it's time for our second annual year in review episode, where we look back on 2018, which has been an awful, terrible, horrible, ghastly, fucking nightmare of a year in every respect except for one. The movies were actually pretty good this year. Yeah, so I think if we're going to talk about movies from 2018... The, the elephant in the theater or in the room or however you want to say it is probably A Star is Born mm-hmm. um, as I think it's outgrossed many things. I'm not sure where it currently stands, but I know this year I think it's it's taken the grand bag of dough over anything else. Yeah, let's talk about that. Did you see it? Did you see it, Devin? I did not see that one. Okay. I did. Uh, I, I will admit, initially I was very skeptical. Me too. Um, the trailer for the film is definitely amazing and really sells the hell out of it. But I mean, on paper, it sounds like a terrible idea. I mean, Bradley Cooper directing a film, Lady Gaga as a star. I mean, it just seems like it's just going to be a big shit show. And actually, when I went to see it, I was really impressed. Yeah. I saw the first time I saw the trailer, I was some, seeing something else. And my first thought, and I, I have... I like Bradley Cooper. I have no problem with Lady Gaga. Uh, But my first thought was, why? (laughs) I just thought, uh, why? You know, is this your little vanity project that you have dreamed about doing for so long, but in the end, we're all going to watch it and go, why did you have to remake? You know, a lot of people are familiar with the Chris Christopherson, Barbara Streisand version, which was pretty popular and and pretty great i went back and watched it though and uh, there's you know it's definitely got it's a little hokey at times but uh i don't know if it if it totally stands up to the test of time but the story is strong uh but the same thing i i was actually blown away part of my trepidation with originally seeing it as we watch a trailer you're like okay bradley cooper's playing like a kind of like a, a jason isbell like a like a roots rocker type character 
but he's playing in front of these adoring, like massive, like U2 level crowds. And I was like, in what universe <laughs> is like the drive-by truckers pulling in that kind of numbers? But, like, no, all country is not that big, people. Well. I know, I know, I, I know, I, I am the guy who always cuts farts about country music in general. It's, it's not, my, not my milieu, but Amy yeah, is more of a fan. I, I am, and I do think that, uh, I, I didn't find that if if there was anything to find um, not believable, that wasn't it. You know what I mean? I kind of accepted. That's how they positioned him from the get go. You know, this is him, and you can sort of see initially. Here's the level of fame that Jackson Maine, that his character is at. So I didn't have to parallel it to like who would he really sound like in the current contemporary country field and would that person be having this equal success i just thought okay that's where this character is at life so that wasn't that wasn't hard for me although speaking of parallels um because I, I was reading on twitter the other day somebody's like somebody asked a question okay if you took jackson may in the real world who would be the closest analog to him like somebody who's a rocker, who's also kind of country-esque, who's popular enough that they could sell out arenas, but also be recognized by a random drag queens at a drag bar. <laughs> and, and somebody came up with the most amazing answer, which I, I will say right off the bat, this is not my answer, but I think it's brilliant. They said Kid Rock. <laughs> and I was like, that's dead right. Because it's all the requirements, like rock star, kind of country-ish, everybody knows him on a diamond trajectory. Yeah. Fits the character like it, a that, that actually is really brilliant. I mean, I don't think he has the, Kid Rock has the, I mean, Jackson <laughs> Maine, uh, for all his flaws, ha, you know, was a character with depth, you know, and, and maybe all that depth is, you know, contributing to, you know, his substance abuse problems and things like that. Uh, yeah, I don't think Kid Rock is all that uh, compelling of a human being, but... Yes, in those aspects, it does. It definitely fits because he could walk into any kind of scenario, and and I feel like there's a lot of people that identify with Kid Rock, uh, uh, you know, in all kinds of different cultures and subcultures. Of course, yeah. I mean Jackson Maine may have the artistic integrity, but he doesn't have the beaver fur hat or the Joey C. So there's, <laughs> there's always that. Uh, I don't think Kid Rock has the Joey C anymore. Yeah, <laughs> only, only God has Joe C now. Wah, wah, wah. But no, it's in a... It, what struck me about that film is just kind of, especially the first hour, is that the is that it's almost like, like almost like a Richard Linkletter kind of movie at first. Like that, that long romance where it's just them hanging out late at night and going from, from a bar to like a drugstore and hanging out in the park. It felt like a real relationship unfurling. Like... It felt very like small scale, but kind of very beautifully staged. Yeah, I love that, and it was it was the thing that uh, people, you know, some of those scenarios where someone meets in movies where someone meets a famous person or whatever, and they fall in love. It it tends to be some kind of ridiculous, like unrealistic scenario. But the way that kind of happened was really oddly natural and very human, and those conversations were awkward and. Uh, intriguing at the same time and a little almost a little hard to watch and that they were pretty real like you could get into a moment with something like this and with someone like this all of a sudden you're running around you know with this famous rock star and you're at the drugstore and you're sitting in the parking lot and you're probably thinking to yourself like you're never going to see this person again you know so you have no no reason to not be totally yourself and be totally honest. So yeah. there was a lot of honesty in that opening portion that I think really pulls you into the movie and then you, you're you compelled to stay. 
Absolutely. And Cooper and Gaga are really, really, really well matched. Like they have great chemistry, and like neither one of them are slouches. Like they bring a lot of um, a, a lot of, in, of interior life to those characters. Yeah, they worked really well together. Um, kudos to Bradley Cooper. I mean, you know, directorial debut. You couldn't ask for uh, a better result. Um, you know, he really took the time to, you know, it's also another thing that bugs me, and I think we've talked about it in past issues, when people are making a movie about music and they don't really know about music, so, you know, they just portray everything so goofy or hokey, where you're like, that would never happen, it's unrealistic. So this really, uh, you know, they, the industry stuff, now the industry stuff in the second half we'll talk about. Oh, yes. The industry stuff with him and his band and some of the dynamics between them and the audience and the greatness of those couple of those songs very realistic um so i i thought that was it was very thoughtful in that way absolutely and also even the smaller players like a like sam elliott is just astonishing and that like the, the whole dynamic between him and the, if anything i think i think that that's the one story i wish the film had lingered on longer was the kind of torture relationship between the two brothers because he gives such an, an emotional, profound performance in that. Yeah, with little words, yeah. yeah. Also, Dice, Andrew Dice Clay yeah. as uh, her father, Lady Gaga's character's father, which was kind of a surprise to see for some reason until I saw it, I didn't realize he was playing the father, and, and he was great to watch also. And they both had uh, not as much, I mean, I think Dice probably had much more screen time. Yeah. Uh, and his little his colleagues and and friends with his little business and stuff, but uh, yeah, I think that was that relationship. The brothers' relationship was also riveting, um, and I think everybody across the board. It seems like critically, people would have loved to see seen a little bit more of that too. Oh, of course, but yeah, who would have thought that like Andrew Dashkov would mature into being such a great actor? You know. In his dotage, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. To think yeah, about. I'm kind of hoping that he does go on from there and, and maybe take on some more dramatic roles. Of course, but imagine if he did his, uh, he wins an Oscar. <laughs> he does a second speech as the old dice man. <laughs> <laughs> Takes the jack out of retirement. <laughs> Hickory dickory dock. <laughs> this Oscar has got a cock. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, we could probably just go home right now after that. <laughs> yeah, show's over. I don't even know what else I could, how I could follow that up. It's a good thing we're not uh, doing stand-up sets. I would just but, drive home. But, you know, the thing is, like, it's a really good, it is, I mean, it, it is a fantastic movie. It's really well done. But I think my big criticism with that, well, two, is the first, I mean, the first is, um, it doesn't really do a very good time of depicting the passage of time. So things seem to accelerate in that film at a crazy pace. Like, like you look at a Scorsese film, for example, like you look at Goodfellas or Casino, he does a really good job of not telling you what time a person's life is in, but you just feel it. You can tell that years have gone by and you kind of get, you don't really lose track of where people are at in their life. Whereas A Star is Born, like, they meet up, she goes out and has her climactic singing duo in front of that audience. And from there, it's like we're watching a career in super fast forward. Like, not just watching her ascent to stardom overnight, like going from being like a viral sensation to being an SNL guest star, but you're watching his career collapse like in the blink of an eye. And there's, and it, it just feels very abrupt, and there's not really a good. He doesn't really transition it very well. Right, where she goes uphill, it's like zero, <laughs> zero to 60. <laughs> um, it, he, his decline, it goes 
twice as fast, but we don't witness it. So they're they're definitely more focused on showing her, you know, the billboards and the makeup and the dance training and, you know, kind of, and, and it happens instantly. And then he is just really in the depths of his, uh, you know, addiction. Usually, I mean, if it was true to life, he would meet someone, especially in, with such a passionate relationship. I mean, he was definitely thinking about these things about himself, what he could and couldn't overcome and what he has overcome. You could you, you could see that through the movie. But if it was more true to life, I think he would have definitely hit a pink cloud there for a while where uh, because of being in love and having this rejuvenation of this new song with the fans or whatever, I think he would have given some extra gusto to his own life to try yeah. to be building himself up a little bit. Um, and they didn't really have any of that. He was obviously happy in love, but I think normalcy would have him, at least for a little bit, uh, ex- kind of over exuberant, and then, and then probably would have crashed from there. So we didn't really get to see him get as high as I think a person would have That's gotten in that situation, Absolutely. and then coming and come down from there. You know, almost the uh, high enough to justify how actually low he got, and he got to the lowest point a person could get. So. That's my psychological analysis. Uh, but I don't think, yeah, I don't think yeah. they gave enough time to that. And I, I didn't care for uh, some of the industry characters, like her, the manager that she got. Uh, you know, he was a pretty despicable character. Oh, yeah. It was a little, slightly on the cheesy side. Sinister Englishman. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, part of the problem with, with adapting that is that uh, the original versions of Star is Born, like, originally, you know, it, it's Hollywood actors. And I think that that rapid ascent and descent makes more sense than Hollywood because actors can literally disappear overnight. Right. It happens. I mean, you look at someone like Brendan Fraser, for example, who can be a ton of films and one day he's just gone. Oh, yeah. For years and years and years. <laughs> yeah, he always comes up with us. We do, we do talk about <laughs> we him. We love Brendan Fraser. We miss you, Brendan. <laughs> Come back to it. Yeah. <laughs> but by contrast with, mu- with music, musicians don't go away. E- even when they don't... Look at um, Rick Springfield. Rick Springfield hasn't been musically relevant in right. decades. That guy from Sugar Ray, he's always turning up on a cruise or some oh, kind yeah. of rock and roll event or mm-hmm. VH1, uh, you know, what happened to someone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> e- even if you've ever had a hit in your life as a musician, you can still basically live off that for a long time. So the idea... That Jackson Maine is, you know, when we first see him, is a superstar packing like Foo Fighter level crowds. And then all of a sudden he's playing conventions. And then he's getting preempted at the Grammys and replaced by somebody else for Robinson Tribute. Like, it, it rings really false because that's just not how the music industry works. Yeah. And if, and if the focus was, oh, Jackson Maine is like really letting himself go. So we'd, we don't want to take the chance on having him on stage. They didn't show that. No, they did not. And I know, uh, you know, there's a lot of. You know, for people who have been through sort of sad and sad things and depression, there's a lot to relate to. But I also thought one of the, and I've said compelling now on this uh, show, <laughs> sorry, my, you know, my inner thesaurus is like on Sunday mode. But uh, one thing I think that was also really engaging about the movie was that not just that sad focus, but um, just the idea about, you know, people having uh, dreams, you know, and, and kind of putting them into action and I, I that's something that it's cheesy but I always find that inspiring sure yeah. of course uh, mm-hmm. so yeah, I mean, that moment where she, char- where she quits her job and charges out the kitchen like it's oh yeah everybody, everybody wants to see that moment <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. like I could do that someday maybe. yeah maybe <laughs> of course <laughs> 
So, yeah, I think all in all, it's a, you know, it's it's definitely the movie of the year and I think it's probably going to dominate the Oscars and uh, you know, good for them, but anything else you want to say about it before we we talk about the one million other movies oh, yeah. that were made this year. Well, I also think um, it's also a great example of a remake that works and, and that is actually justifiable because the basic format of, of, of um, you know, Star is Born, you could really adapt it to any era. Like You could do a hip-hop version of it. Right. You could do a heavy metal version of it. I mean, it's not some, it's not one of those stories where it, it only makes sense in the context of its time. So, and it, yeah, so initially when, when it was first announced, it, it didn't, like you said, scream like a vanity project. But when you watch it, you're like, no, this this this, this is perfectly re- this is a perfectly valid and legitimate piece of art by itself. If the other Starborns didn't exist, it wouldn't make this movie any worse. Right. Or better in comparison. Like, it, it I is don't know if I could, you could say that about some of the other ones. But then, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the Judy Garland one holds up really well. Yeah. I mean, I think most of them are pretty solid to varying degrees. I mean, it's like, in terms of, if you look at it, compare it to any other film in Hollywood that's been remade like four or five times, like, it's hard to think of a better, uh, a film that's got a better legs than that one. Yeah. But speaking of remakes, uh, did either of you guys see Suspiria? Not yet. I uh, know, not yet. Right. <laughs> I won't spoil it. <laughs> no, that, go ahead. I mean, do what you have to do. We want to make people happy. Well, I'm I, still gonna see it no matter what. So. Oh, it's it's really worth seeing. Um, it's as most people have seen have said it, it is too long by far. Um, but I think it's another example of a remake that justifies its own existence. Because on paper, I mean, the original Argento film is one of those films like why would you bother remaking it? Like it's such a particular creation. Like you know, you had that 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 day glow hell look to it where everything's super blown out and vivacious and brilliantly colored. The music that's cacophonous oh, yeah. goblin soundtrack. The fact that the plot is like a, a bad dream, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So when you have like you know when Luca, the director, when he announced the remake, where he's like, yeah, we're, we're gonna do, a, we're not gonna use the soundtrack. We're gonna have like a moody like Tom York soundtrack. Instead of having like oh, bright yeah. neon colors, it's going to be like like mute brown earth tones, and there's going to be a lot more plot. Like on paper, that sounds terrible because it, it's basically removing all the things that make Suspiria Suspiria. Like you're taking out the colors, you're taking out the music, and you're adding in more plot, which is not the film's strong suit. But it actually makes it. It's actually a really brilliant decision after when you watch it. You're like it makes sense because. And now it's its own thing. It's its own unique movie. It's, it's not trying to be a Suspiria remake. It's be, it's basically taking a couple of the ideas in the original film and twisting it into a Twilight Nudes creation. But it doesn't feel violating of the original. No, 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 not at all. Like It, it feels like you could watch them both side by side and they take place in two different universes, basically. Wow. Did you see oh. it, Kevin? You didn't not see yet. It, I haven't yet. seen it yet. But yeah. All right. Okay. And it's, it's grotesque, too. Like There's a couple of death scenes. There's one scene where a character... Um, you know, spoiler, baseball, if you've seen the original, not <laughs> spoiler. Um, the film, basically, the new version lets you know, like, from the first, like, ten minutes that there are witches. And the Dance Academy, which takes place in Germany in the film, is all run by a, a malevolent coven of witches headed by Tilda Swinton. Like, it, it lets you know right from the get-go what's going on. And one of, the, one of the creepier aspects of the film is that one of the ways that they, they torture people is that they cast spells on the dancers. And so when the dancers move their body, it moves their victim's body. So there's a scene that cross cuts between Dakota Johnson rehearsing in like in the ballet room, like doing a, an elaborate dance sequence, and it cuts to a victim in, in, a, in an empty room elsewhere whose body is being twisted apart in like to mimic her impossible contortions. 
and it's it's gruesome. Wow. Like wow. it's when you watch like it's one of the few times I, I watched like a death scene in a theater where I'm I'm just like. Melfi <laughs> <laughs> Gabe being like that is like it, it is graphic and it's it's bleak, but yeah, it's an amazing film. Like it's just very well done. I mean, it definitely I think shits the bed a little bit in the last twenty minutes. Like the ending, you know, I'm just gonna spoil it. Um, there is an ending where there's a mo- an elaborate montage in which one of the witches basically blows up like twenty people's heads, <laughs> but they soundtrack it to a very sad Tom York song. Oh no! So so, so, oh. so uh, yeah, imagine like uh, imagine Radiohead, imagine a uh, uh, Tom York uh, yeah. ballad while there's heads blowing up and there's blood everywhere. You, you, I, I watch that and I'm like, are you fucking serious? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, especially a movie with uh, such an iconic, like, where the music is so iconic in the original version. Like, why would you Tom York it up, you know? Uh, well, actually, the Tom York movie, it, it's actually really good up until that point. Like, I actually think the new music is very appropriate for that film, and it's creepy in its own way. It's just, again, when you're watching that, like, orgy of destruction, you're like, you're really going to put on that? <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 if you're gonna be cacophonous with the music, like, this is a perfect moment to bring out the bashing drums or whatever. But instead, like, you're listening to, like, you know, like, sub- subterranean homesick alien type music while heads are exploding all over the place. It's so, it's such, it's such a bad choice. But no, it's it is really worth seeing. Also, there that has that that gimmick where Tilda Swinton plays like three characters and one of them's a dude. It's mm-hmm. kind of kind of dumb. <laughs> like, it doesn't really justify it at all. It's distracting because you see her as the male character and you're like, that is clearly Tilda Swinton <laughs> in old man, like, makeup. Yeah, it takes you out of it. Yeah, I, I kept yeah. expecting it to be, like, a trick. Like, I kept expecting mm-hmm. it to be like, psych, I'm a witch. <laughs> so when it did happen, like, oh, she's just an old dude. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. Still weird, though. Yeah, that is strange. But it's definitely, a, to me, a, it is one of those rare examples where, like, yeah, it's a rare example of a, of, of a remake of an iconic film that doesn't feel pointless. It doesn't feel like a cash Like, it feels like somebody going, I'm going to take this beloved property and I'm going to recreate it in my own aesthetic. And it, and it feels like a worthwhile thing on its own. Like, if the original film disappeared tomorrow, I think that the new Suspiria would be, like, a worthy successor. Wow. Really? Wow. It is a little statement of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. But uh, also, maybe the same could be said for *Stars Born*. Honestly, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Worthy well, successor. Yeah. So, what about you? Uh, what, 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 what is rang your bell this year? <laughs> <laughs> so many things rang my bell. Something I really loved this year was *Leave No Trace*. Anyone? Mm-mm. So, <laughs> it's uh, starring Ben Foster. Who I absolutely love, Ben Foster. Are you familiar with Ben Foster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. He is plays. It's a true story based on a book about a, a war vet, you know, from a, a more recent times, of modern times, coming back from, I want to say Afghanistan. They, do, I don't know if that they, that they specified in the movie, uh, and he's just P, he has PTSD, uh, and his wife had left him. So when it starts, he's already living in the woods in the pacific northwest with his daughter yeah who's a approaching the teenage years uh and he's kind of had her adapt to that that lifestyle the out of society lifestyle uh where but he does trek into town to go to the va and get uh he's some kind of benefits that he gets uh, but he can't deal at all yeah with normal society so he's had her adjust to from living in normal society to living in little setup camps 
yeah. in the woods. Um, and then it kind of evolves from there where they have to have to move for various reasons and then some, some of the different camps that they come across and then how the story unravels for her. And at one point, uh, not to spoil it, um, with the help of, you know, some kind of, you know, state service, social services agency, they get into a home where he and she have like an actual home to live in. And that's yeah. that's even too normal for him. Uh, and he just can't, he can't handle it. And she, at, at that point, hmm. um, is also having trouble adapting back to the lifestyle. And you see that part of it uh, is something that happens with kids. Even when they go through trauma, they're more inclined to want to please their parents or, you know, they're tethered to that relationship with their parent. And right. the mom has left, so she's with the dad. So they're kind of... Uh, Maybe they don't even realize it. Maybe subconsciously you're, you're doing the thing to appease your parents that you you know you feel like you should do, and she knows that he can't he can't maintain a normal lifestyle. So she, even though she uh, she can, she wants to do what's right by him, uh, and so then it just kind of goes on from there. I won't say how it ends, but uh, Ben Foster is. You, I mean, he's mesmerizing. You can't keep your eyes off of him. Uh, and the girl that plays his daughter, also astounding. Um, but it's just great. It's really gripping. And uh, I like psychological tales. And Oh, yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of that, the psychology of the war P- PTSD. And, you know, uh, I don't think – I think there's a lot of things that come out uh, like that show Homecoming is out now, and that's sort of about transitioning back from war, from P- PTSD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it kind of also lends to the question about what are we really doing for these people? And, uh, you know, it shows that how challenging it is for someone to try to come back and just uh, re-enter life in a regular way or in a oh, of routine way. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's... It's almost overwhelming at times. That's it, like incites a little anxiety because you're just not sure where it's going to go and and how what you don't see that's going on in his head is leading, you know, the path the whole time. So it's pretty great. It was one of my favorite things that I saw this year. Nice. And what's what I'm really bummed about is that but I think Ben Foster is terrific and he's um, sometimes underrated. I mean, I think people who follow actors or really like acting. You know, we'll specifically watch some things. Let's see what Ben Foster's going to do this time. But I think with uh, Star is Born, I don't think he's going to, even if he was to get a nomination, I don't think he has any chance of winning. And that's kind <laughs> of a bummer just because it was a really good performance. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was something for me that I I loved this year. Well, sounds excellent. Yeah. The way I added to my list. Yeah. And what was it called again? Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And apparently there's a, the book that it's based on was, you know, like a bestseller. Oh, okay. Well, cool. on the subject of people who can't adapt, um, I also saw a movie this year that, that was really interesting. Um, you, you, did you see The Endless? No. Mm-mm. It's a film that was made by uh, Justin Betts and Aaron Moorhead, who are these two film, they're like a, a, a director partnership. They made a film uh, called Spring a couple of years ago. That was uh, is basically about a, a a mermaid, a killer mermaid in Italy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although it, 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 it's filmed kind of like before sunrise, where it's about these backpackers who have this idyllic vacation in Italy, and one of them falls mm. in love with a woman who turns out to also be kind of a mermaid monster. 
It's a really good movie. Although my, my biggest criticism with it is that it, it, it has a it's shot beautifully. It's got a really great concept. But halfway through, they start trying to scientifically explain the nature of the monster, and oh, it loses no. me. Yeah. It's really convoluted, and you're like, dude, it's magic. Just say <laughs> Just it's go magic. magic. <laughs> you don't need to explain it. Like, that's actually one of my biggest pet peeves of film in general. Like, I hate films that do that. Like, the, the four movies are like, this is our soul forge. Oh, you mean it's like a quantum? Oh, quantum yeah. Like, no, it, like, it's just fucking magic, okay? Oh, yeah. The midichlorians or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, you know, it's, like, like, it's like vampires. They're not, it's not a disease. It's just a magic curse. Go with it. But anyway, they, they made that movie. They made, they made um, Spring. And they also made another film called Resolution a few years ago. And The Endless is a film of two brothers who, who were played by the directors themselves. And in most cases, directors acting in their own films, unless you're Orson Welles, is usually a disaster. Case in point, Tarantino. But they actually do a really good, they actually do a really good job in this film. And the premise is these two brothers who grew up in a UFO cult. And then a few years ago, they escaped from the cult, and they're living in the, they're living like, I think in Orlando, I think. And they're just dredging out a day-to-day existence. And the interesting hook of the film is the younger brother, Tim, the cult is like his family, and he hasn't adapted to the real world. Like, he wants to go back. And the beginning of the film is him convincing his older brother, like, let's just go back for a day. Let's just see the cult again. Let's see what, our, what, 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 what they're up to. And so it's this great kind of premise for a horror movie where it's like you have to convince the characters to go to a place where they know something bad's going to happen to them. But you have to create an excuse. Like you have to give an excuse for a cheerleader to go down to the basement. Right. So they come up with a really interesting reason for why you want to go back to this cult, which is clearly up to no good. But it's because of like like family connections and nostalgia and like feeling out of place in the real world like clean toilets for a living. So it makes sense for them to go back. But they go back and it turns this Lovecraftian horror story involving like the manipulation of time and all sorts of stuff. Like it's it's really interesting. It's really well done, and it's cool too because the cult themselves are depicted as like the hipsters, like vegan style hipsters. Like they're, they're these clean living people that wear like button ups and like listen to Animal Collective and have like neatly trimmed beards. Like they're not at all menacing, but so it feels very realistic. Like yeah, a modern cult would probably look like these people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So it's a really like for like if you love trippy like head trip movies like I would really like the endless it's a, it's a low budget well done film in that genre. It's I like very, a trippy head trip movie. Yeah, me yeah. too. <laughs> I have to check it out. I'm always ready to get my head uh, <laughs> in a twist. <laughs> well, speaking of well, you know, sort of head trips. Did you guys see Annihilation? No. Oh. <laughs> Ashley and I didn't see any of the same movies. Yeah, sure. Yes, yes, yes. Um, well, we did see. Wait, wait. You know, let, let, we'll go back to that initial later. We did. We did see Black Klansman together. We did. And that was really good. Yeah. That was something. Black else. Klansman was good, Devin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Devin's had a busy year at producing all these podcasts. So. Yeah, I think I only saw like the superhero movies, sadly, but that's okay. <laughs> we, we will talk, talk about, about that. Yeah, we will get to that. Uh, Black Klansman, very well done. I would say the biggest shock for me when I was watching it, I didn't realize the main actor was Denzel Washington's son. Until about halfway through, I listened to his voice, and I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, I can totally, I can totally hear and see it now. Do you like Denzel? I do. I, I like Denzel, yeah. yeah. He's had some good films. He has, and, and I love many movies that he's been in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Denzel bugs me a little bit. There's a little arrogance with Denzel. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. That uh, <laughs> I don't think he's really trying to hide it. I think that's no. why it's noticeable. But sometimes I want to, I just want to kick that swagger just a tad. But, uh, yeah, he's kind of a Cary Grant actor. Like, he, he's basically Denzel in every movie yes. he's in. Yeah, yes, that's he is. true. Yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah, Black Klansman. I thought it was sharp. You know, it was focused. 
It was really it, funny, too. It was funny. Like, it was yeah. savagely funny <laughs> at times. It was brutal. You know, it's tough subject matter to tackle. And that's what was also generally experimental for like a mainstream film. Like, like, like the opening of the film where it's just them watching a clip from Gone with the Wind. Like, I don't, I don't know what your experience was, but when I, when I was in the theater, Amy, like, I thought we were in the wrong movie at first. I was like, what the hell is going on? Oh, yeah. I wasn't sure where that was going. Yeah. yeah. So, so when it cuts from that to like Alec Baldwin doing like kind of like the, like the racist you know, guy on the camera, like botching his, like, his on-camera statements, like it was like watching it was generally disconcerting and odd. Yeah. I mean, it definitely paints that picture of uh, the horrific roots of racism and, you know, how it, it really hasn't changed in a lot of ways in, t- in modern times. And, you know, we're seeing that in full force on the news every day, unfortunately. And it, it was a little it was a little experimental for Spike, but and that's where I wasn't sure how it was going to go because he's really good at doing both. You know, you can have a do the right thing type of thing, or you can have a like an inside man, which just, you know, just views like a big, you know, big budget smooth, little bit slick yeah. uh, box office movie, which I love. I love that movie. Yeah, me too. Um, it's a good one. Yeah. yeah. But it is super slick and smooth, but absolutely. So, yeah, I thought all the acting was good. I, I really wasn't sure. Uh, I'm not always... I like Adam Driver. Yeah. Uh, I'm not always... I'm not still not totally sold on what his chops are or will be, but I thought he was real solid in that. Oh, well, yeah. Plus, plus, the film that sets up a good contrast between the two characters. We get these two people who are both minorities, who are both working in a system that's actively repressing them, and had a bit of cognitive dissonance about it. It's right. interesting seeing that, like, that, you know, whereas, you know, the main character knows this, that Driver's character doesn't realize until, until, like, halfway through the film, he doesn't realize he has that privilege. And an interesting right. moment where he, it almost like he mourns it, like he mourns, the, like he mourns his ignorance, where it's like he realizes maybe it was better back when he fought he still passed. Right. Yeah. So, so it handles a very complicated idea, and it, it doesn't really sugarcoat that aspect of the story at all. Yeah. It's a lot of, uh, well, I think, and, and we might have talked about it when we did the podcast where we talked about people living double lives. Yeah. You know, uh, and just, like you said, the kind of cognitive dissonance that goes on. Well, plus there's that amazing sequence, too, of uh, the back and forth sequence where you have Harry Belafonte. Telling the you know the the kind of the, like this the black student caucus about this horrific you know public murder he witnessed a long time ago, and it cuts from that to like the um, the, the KKK watching uh, Birth of a Nation, right, and like just howling and having a great time, and so it's just, it's it's the most fascinating sequence how how he cross cuts between those two sequences where you, you know one you have these you know, these black students who are very somber and respectful and like feeling the horror of the story that's happening and you're kind to these like you know white assholes like howling their faces off like watching like a a cartoon version of that kind of story play out on screen right yeah it's pretty brutal in those ways too but that's the sad reality and i think uh you know the biggest point that uh it shows other than what 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 individually people have to face uh within themselves uh is that um the way we've evolved (laughs) You know, uh, unfortunately, has not been tremendous. You know, no. Yeah, I, we, I think we like to imagine our evolution as a culture and as a species like a constant upward rising motion. But I kind of think it's more like a spiral. I think we kind of keep returning. We 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 fall back and return to really bad patterns in our existence. Yeah, and, two steps forward. Yeah, three steps back. Yeah. And that's something that the film, his film, like my, my, my if I had to make any criticism for like Clansman's, I think sometimes it pushes. A little too hard on the the, you know, the modern relevancy aspect of it, where it's like, hey, look, this is like Trump America. This is like Trump America. Yeah. And it's like, 
I get, I, 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 yeah, the, clue, the parallels are obvious and relevant, but sometimes I think he underlines it a little too hard. Yeah, I think mm. more than having to say that, it's, uh, I think the bigger message would be, this is what got us to Trump America, you know, instead of just saying, hey, we're in it now, like we have, we, you know, we're such a society that's so focused on the now, it's like, let's, let's push past that and say, you know, here's how we got there you know here's all the rungs on the ladder so um you know it's not perfect but you know pointing these things out in any capacity is important relevant um but it's you know and it manages to be entertaining even with all that uh depth and yeah absolutely Mandy, did you see Mandy? Actually, no, I didn't. I really wanted to. Like, like it, it, it. Devin? No. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna let you guys see it. Maybe we'll, we'll maybe we'll save it for a Nicolas Cage uh, special event because it's. Oh yes, I didn't see it, but yeah, I want to see it's that. It's pretty that spectacular. So yeah, yeah. I, I liked it quite a bit. I mean, probably the reason why I, I probably I think the only reason why I didn't dash to see it is because mm-hmm. I've seen uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow, the guys. Are oh yeah, film, yeah. And I and I wasn't really too keen. You didn't on like it. it. It was really trippy. I mean, you just have to be in, maybe in the right set of mind. Oh, right. I love the, the trippy aspect of it, like, like, yeah. like the visuals, the atmosphere. That was cool. Mm-hmm. I just thought the story kind of dragged a lot, and in the end, when it turns into a slasher from the last half hour. That felt really to me kind of like really too jarring a total shift. Yeah, mm. there's some. I mean, Mandy is cheesy for sure, um, and you can't. Sometimes you're not sure if you're loving it because it's like a '70s, uh, you know, a, like throwback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> '70s throwback. You know, painted van come to life. You know. Um, <laughs> mystical and and spooky or if you're just so excited to see you know freaky nicholas cage in action you know you're like am i just really like if yeah, this was another actor doing this would i love it as much if it was john cusack you know or someone in his you know that age group you know his peers playing that character would i love it as much probably not i think that you think nicholas- it's like his comeback movie yes you think? yeah yeah because like what well, he's been playing that same character like in all these horrible films that he keeps getting casted in and like maybe he just finally gets to be that character he's been playing in every film yeah. in, the, in this one. <laughs> and he like, really goes for it. Yeah. So, yeah, I will say see it, but we'll we'll talk about it. Well, and also Nick Cage, uh, unfiltered, is the best Cage. One of the it best is. actors, period. Like, he, he, people don't give him enough credit. Unhinge that thing. guy, and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's pure cinematic gold. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you ever see Drive Angry? Uh-uh. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah. there's a part in there. I still feel like I remember, I remember there's a part in a motel room where he's sleeping with like a hooker, and halfway through, like a bunch of like like hitmen come into the room, and he kills them in a shootout while still having sex with her. <laughs> and it's so it is so ridiculous. When I watched it the first time, I'm like, is this actually happening? Yeah. And like, am I having a stroke? Am I imagining this? And then you remember two things: it's Nicolas Cage, and the movie is actually called Drive, Drive Angry, Angry. <laughs> which isn't which is still not as bad. That movie title is Bangkok Dangerous, <laughs> which is still like the greatest bad film title of all time. Like, like nothing. Like, it's not even Dangerous Bangkok. It's Bangkok, Bangkok Dangerous. Dangerous. <laughs> it's like a yeah. fucking Yoda movie title. <laughs> Bangkok <laughs> Dangerous. It is. It's pretty good. Um, yeah, I would say see it, and then we'll we'll have a 
I think he described his like his acting style as abstract art, if I remember correctly, in an interview. And I was like, that's about right. Yeah, that's <laughs> about right. Yeah, I don't think he makes any bones about, you know, I mean, sometimes people are like, well, I saw an interview with Sean Penn and he was like, let's face it, you know, he used to be great, but he doesn't make good movies anymore and he doesn't do any real acting anymore. <laughs> and it was so smug and he was like, I love him, he's my friend, but let's face it. And it was sort of yeah. like, it's like, what's the, le- wow, Sean you're, Penn, some, yeah. you're <laughs> such a smug prick sometimes, yeah. you know, and I mean, yeah, you're, you're good and you're great and you've had greatness but you've, you've not everything you've done has yeah. been wonderful i can't remember the alaska movie he's even done sean yeah. bingo uh probably tree of life that's basically it yeah mm-hmm. he's barely in tree of life it was just so like hmm. it's like nicholas cage fans know what they want yeah <laughs> yeah it's like you know one can argue that sean pass by great consistency as an actor mm-hmm. but you know with nicholas cage you get the crushing lows but when he's when he's on, I mean, nobody can touch him. Like when, yeah. he, when he's really when he really is on, it's 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 electric and fascinating to watch. Yeah. A few actors, I think, are willing to take the risks that he takes. Yeah, because then true. you got your leaving Las Vegas or you know. Wild at Heart. Yeah, Wild at mm-hmm. Heart. What about you, Devin? Like, what what what? Of all the films that have come out in 2018, like what is uh, what stuck with you? Um. Jeez. I I mean, yeah. Like I said, I saw um, a lot of superhero movies. But I can't really say any of them were that great. I mean, like, they were interesting to, to watch. I mean, Infinity War, right? We saw that. Oh, yeah. I liked it. Um, I didn't like the ending. I, I, really? I feel like part. Yeah, I feel like it was like. Um, I feel like they tried to, like, make you love the bad guy. Like, they're like, oh, you gotta feel bad for him because he's gone through this and that. And, like, I never really felt like I cared about that character at all. And then I also. I thought that it was very weird that at the end, you know, when, uh, like, half the Avengers. You know disappear um it was obviously like the new ones and uh i mean i guess they're pri- I, I thought it would have been more impactful if it was like iron man or something or like a, a character they've been building up all um all these years yeah but then they're like no it's like spider-man and like all the new ones that you really didn't care that much about at least for me i didn't really care about them that much but at one point i thought they were going to kill off iron man i thought that would have been great um not that I want to see that character go, but just it would have been really impactful and uh, yeah. some depth to it. But uh, I mean, I was excited about the movie. I, I liked the majority of it, but the ending for me just it, it didn't it didn't sit well. Well, I noticed that too. Like when, when, I, when I initially watched it, I thought like, oh yeah, they're probably gonna kill some of the older people. Yeah. So when all the new when all the new characters disappeared, I was kind of surprised by that. But also, I think it makes sense because because it's a two parter and the second because they're doing a sequel, a second one, it makes sense that they're clearing away all the new characters so they could focus on the old people to give them a, like a send off. Right. Because if you think about it, like yeah, Iron Man gets some good screen time in this one, but Captain America is barely in the movie. Right. So yeah. it makes sense that in the new film they they clear out all the other characters so when the the old the original core team kept like their final sacrifice moment because I'm pretty sure the next one I'm pretty sure Cap and or Iron Man is probably going to die in the next one yeah I think they said they're, they're done so, so yeah, I, think, I think they're setting that up and it yeah. makes sense that, they're, that they get rid of like people like Black Panther because you know they're going to make more Black Panther movies they're oh yeah more yeah. Spider-Man, Spider-Man yeah but if you keep them around the film and you have to use them but, so doing yeah. what they did at the snap makes sense because you're you're you're, uh, you're clearing out the, you're, you're tightening the narrative so you have to right. deal with like 30 characters but I mean you know they're going to come back so I mean you think that they would at least maybe took one big guy out because you know you know, he knows he's going to come back anyways for the for the sequel well, they did kill Loki. I mean, unless it was oh. another trick. I mean, they did oh, kill right. Loki at the beginning. Yeah. I mean, that was that was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still think when you consider like all the characters they had to use in that, like that's a film where you have to tie up like seventeen, like almost like a de- decade plus of movie history. Yeah. Plus, like 
30 to 40 characters. And the fact that they're actually able to balance all those competing narrative strains they do and actually have it be coherent yeah. and make sense is is actually, you have, you have to give them credit for that. Like, that's that's incredibly hard to pull to stick that landing. And they did it. Yeah, I know. Yeah, they, they do an excellent job at that. It's just, uh, yeah, I just didn't care about the bad guy at all, you know? Hmm. Like they they try to make me like sympathize with him. I was like, why? Like why do I? <laughs> yeah. Why do I care about him? He's not like an antihero or anything. Or interesting. I just wanted some eater, but I thought this I thought this made him interesting. Like giving him that daughter relationship and having that kind of go sour. Where I'm like, yeah, I don't feel bad for him because he's a bad dude. Yeah. But it also makes it a little more complex. And like when you're watching Guardians of the Galaxy, and you're like, so what is this guy's deal? Yeah. Like who's Lee Pace's character in that film? He's just like, I am evil. Oh, I know. I, am evil. I know. I know. But that, that is his whole, I am a zealot. <laughs> I will blow up this planet. I am dying now. Like, like, the guy is like a fucking board of wood, a plank of wood. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing. And plus, Lee Pace is a great actor, but there's nothing in that script for him to do other than just be, I am evil. Oh, that's yeah. a bummer. I really like him. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's great. great. But in that particular film, like his character is is it, is it nothing. Right. That's unfortunate. Ah, say lovey. Then, yeah, of course, we saw Black Panther. And uh, I thought that was a great film. Yeah. I thought it was really good. My only complaint about it is I thought the fight scenes were, I felt like they were kind of like holding back or something. Like it didn't seem like it was choreographed choreographed as well as the other Marvel films for me for some reason, except for the opening fight, you know, when they're doing the initiation type uh, fight scene. That was really good. But for me, the rest of the movie, it just didn't feel like... It didn't hit it for you. Yeah. Like, I don't know. There was like something about it. Like, it was like they were no holding back or... <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How would you feel about it? Oh, I agree. I actually think... It, 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 I think it actually kind of mirrors a lot of criticisms I have in most Marvel films where I feel like all the character and talking bits are great. And all the action scenes are just CGI splatter, or just whirling bodies. Like in Black Panther, yeah, a lot of the fight scenes don't really connect with me or, or yeah. left an impression. But the actual characterization of everybody, from Killmonger to T'Challa, like I felt that the characters are all really well developed. Their acting was really good. Like it did a really good job of creating a whole new world and setting and making it interesting and Definitely. evolving. Like yeah. I was really impressed by it. Like I don't, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if I'll, I'll call it the best Marvel movie, but it's up there. It's definitely in the top five. Yeah, it was good to see finally. It was good to see Black Panther finally on the big screen. You oh, know? Yeah, yeah. Long time waiting. Yeah. yeah it was cool. Also, I, I got to say, um, I saw it on opening night. I was on th- Thursday over at the AMC in, in the Arizona Center. And a bunch of folks went out there, but they went in costume. Oh, that's so, cool. So when I was pulling up to the theater, a dude, the, the, the older, older African-American gentleman got out of his car, but he's dressed up as James Earl Jones from Coming to America. <laughs> So he had like the lion cloak. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. Which I was like, I, I felt the most profound envy at that moment. Yeah. Where I'm like, I can't, like, a, a, as a white boy, I can yeah. never ever wear, pull off that look. I can never wear that look. But it looks so amazing. He looked so good. I love I was that like, people Dude. dressed for it. Yeah, know? that's cool. Yeah, that the people really came cool. out the, the shikis and like formal wear. And like they were looking, like they, they really played it up. And it was, it was kind of a treat cool. seeing that. It was awesome. Yeah, you know, celebratory. Yeah. yeah, it felt really good. And it just made me think about like about stuff like Comic Gate, where you have all these, like, these bad shaped nerds who are like, you know, <laughs> why are why are POCs getting more representation? I'm like, dude, we, we've had like 
half a century more in <laughs> yeah, pop culture. Plenty of time. Plenty of yeah. time for like white people to have our pop culture. With a nice whitewash over it. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Let, let people have yeah. their fun, man. Let, let, let's have the female Doctor Who's and the sure. black superheroes, the black James Bond. Let's let's mix it up. Make it interesting. The let, Lady Ghostbusters. The Lady Ghostbusters. <laughs> which wasn't, eh, not yeah, a great it movie. Yeah, was, it, was, it wasn't. <laughs> not a great movie. But, you know, yeah. It's like, I, when, I, when I saw people dressing up for Black Panther, it felt really, it was really heartwarming. Like, you know, that, that that's, a, that's a cultural moment for them. Right. It's going to have a greater resonance, and it's going to be for me being just like, I'm just, I'm another white moviegoer. So, for me, it's just another superhero film. For them, it's something a bit deeper, more profound. Yeah. Can we talk about, uh, unless you're, well, you have more Oh, there's a lot more super. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I know that could go on uh, for <laughs> no, a long no, please, time. Please. I just wanted Let's to give a shout that. out to Ethan Hawke for giving two really great performances this year. One in Juliet Naked. Uh, d- anybody? Mm-hmm. Do you know about the story? Mm-hmm. He plays kind of a, a rock star who was popular in the 90s. Uh, I think they were giving like nods to like maybe like an Elliot Smith or yeah. oh, cool. some that kind of depth and yeah. uh, that he disappeared, you know, went off grid and then in this sort of comedic way uh, gets discovered by this woman whose boyfriend runs up fa- is like obsessed with him. Yeah. Uh, and then it, the love story blooms from there and and he was fantastic. Like I really like Ethan so. Oh yeah. Uh, He's a criminally underrated actor. He really yeah. is. He really is. And you feel like with you know obviously you know he's he's played mus- musicians before in movies. Uh, you can see that it's a real passion for him. Um, so he's one of those people that definitely tries to be thoughtful about it, uh, and and it's believable. Um, and it's a sweet love story, and uh, you know you get to see some ni- really nice vulnerability with him, and some you know he's charming and funny, and uh, it's a it's a good it's a good fun. Like if you're gonna have a romantic oriented comedy, like that's the one to see this year. It's not hokey. It's you know it's really sharp and funny, and it was good. And then also first, first reformed. reformed. Did did anybody? <laughs> I, I did yeah. end up seeing that. Yeah, that was. Ooh. That was something else. Do you know about that one? No, I I missed that one. He plays a priest in upstate New York. Yeah. uh, Who, uh, they're kind of a little bit of, seem like they're a little bit of a struggling parish, but at one point they were a stop on the Underground Railroad, so they get a little bit of a a tourist crowd as well. And he is approached by a a woman uh, uh, who wants him to talk to her husband, who's a really radical environmentalist. Uh, and then it kind of goes from there, and it's yeah, pretty intense. It's hard. It's actually really hard to talk about without spoiling it. But it definitely has to do with a lot of inner demons, uh, belief systems, uh, you know, inner passion about finding something you believe in and where that can take you, uh, good and bad. Absolutely. Well, and also too, like especially in the year that we have, where we're seeing firsthand. Just how bad climate change is getting. I mean, look, you know, as, as we're recording this right now, California is basically descending into a like a like a literal fire. Right. Uh, and that's a film. You know, first performance also explicitly about like, environmentalism and like, you know, the moral the moral imperative we have to to do something about it, and or even like Christianity being like you know being stewards of the earth. And it's not it's not not a lot of media touches on that idea of how those two. Like belief systems intersect and how they can kind of complement each other. Right. That's really what a lot of what a first form is about. And a lot, and at the time where people have to kind of, you know, again maybe a little cognitive dissonance. You know what's you know what you need to do, and sometimes how that can interfere with this 
system that you're you are tethered to uh and that you know making that decision of on what to do uh when you know but but in, when you inherently know what the good decision is and and how tough that can be yeah yeah and he and he is really wonderful in that too it's a very uh it's a very quiet movie uh, with a really moderate pace but it's a really loud movie in a lot of ways like i watched it with one friend in at home uh and it was very quiet but i felt like my head was just pounding the whole time like it's very intense oh yeah the message behind it yeah yeah well it also it's also one of those things remarkable too is, is to talk about like a late career renaissance like paul, paul schrader Schrader, yeah you know who hasn't done a whole lot of stuff in a while and this film is like definitely him like showing that he still definitely has some uh some some gas in the tank I know I mentioned this earlier, but I'll bring it up anyway. Annihilation, yes, was one probably one of the most under like underseen films this year. Like it came, it basically came and went as a blitz. It's true, like it, it, it did not last very long in the theaters. And it's a shame because it's a spectacular science fiction. film. It's the same person that made Ex Machina. Yes. Okay, which same. I was I thought was great. Yeah. Same same filmmaker, and it you know it stars Natalie Portman, who as an actress mm. I don't oh. care for a lot of stuff she's in. <laughs> I love Natalie Portman. Apparently Devin does because he, uh, it's totally dark outside. He just lit up the room like a Christmas tree. So, <laughs> but the basic gist of the film is that it takes place you know in the modern world where an alien artifact basically hits I think it's Florida and basically starts like cons- projecting this energy field that blocks off this area from the rest of the world. So like this bubble that people can't that that, that doesn't let anything in or doesn't let anything out. So these group of scientists are sent into the bubble to kind of explore it. And when they go through the bubble, they find that, that that this thing is like terraforming the ecosystem. So it's like turning like this swamp land into like this multicolored psychedelic like landscape from like a from like almost like a Yes album cover come to life. Oh. <laughs> so it, visually, it's a stunning, stunning film. But also, it's actually pretty freaky. Like, it could also be a, a good horror film because wow. the the thing in there—it's called the Shimmer—that's making this, the, the changing this landscape is also changing the life forms. So it's like turning the, the alligators and the bears and stuff into other things. Huh. And the, some of the creatures that come up with that film are really genuinely disturbing. I, don't even want to say I, I read something about that with the animals. Is there so? Is it like a crossbreeding going on, or is it? It's a deeper. It's scientific, a bit of a splicing, uh, yeah. yeah. But it, but it's a really fascinating film because it's it, it's got more it's like it has these scenes where like oh this is kind of like Alien, but the f- tone and the visuals of the film remind me more of like Tars- Tarkovsky like Stalker, Ooh. like it, it's more like one of those meditative like like artsy sci-fi films where yeah there's a plot and there's a, you know and there's definitely an, like let's explore an alien world and like who's gonna die next kind of hooks his story, but ultimately it's more a meditation of like you know what's reality and what's human evolution like. You know, is 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 any, is any of what we're seeing actually real? So it, it was definitely one of those films. Like I didn't expect it to be as heady as it was, as heady. Mm-hmm. But I came away from it being kind of like my head was like swimming afterwards. Yeah, and maybe oh. that's the mark of that director or filmmaker because that's how I felt about Ex Machina. I put it off for a long time, just thinking, eh. and yeah. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. One last film that you saw that you really knocked your socks off. <laughs> Uh, I thought Eighth Grade was a really cute movie. I didn't see that one. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny because last year everybody was, uh, like, over the moon about that other movie, about the 
Ladybird? Was it Ladybird? Yeah, yeah. And I honestly thought that was kind of mediocre. I'm not going to lie. Like, it was okay. It was an okay portrayal of coming of age movie, but eighth grade had a lot more. Uh, it was. The substance was a little more sincere to me. So it was another movie about a girl in eighth grade kind of traversing that landscape, which everyone knows can really suck a lot of times. <laughs> um, but as far as indie movies go this year, I thought that was a really a, a one that jumped out. Nice. You, anybody? Uh, or have, is there anything that you uh, revisited this year? I know I have one. Um, oh, I did, see, uh, I did see a documentary this year. Is really interesting. Did you see Filmworker? No. That's really interesting because it's, um, it's, it's about this guy named Leon Vitale, whose thing is he was Stanley Kubrick's assistant. Oh, yeah. Like, he originally was an actor in Barry Lyndon. And he met Stanley Kubrick for, through the production. And he became so interested in like the behind-the-scenes movie magic that he basically gave up acting, and to become he basically gave up his acting career to become Stanley Kubrick's right-hand man. Oh, so wow. the whole film is about wow. that. And, and so part of it's a mystery too. Where his own family is like, we don't get why he did this. Like he was like, an actor, and he and he was good at it, but he gave it all up to basically become a jack of all trades for Stanley Kubrick. Like, he edited, he helped edit his films. Like he helped uh, restore his prints after Kubrick died. Like the guy, you find out that he was like essential for Kubrick's, Kubrick's career. Like he found Danny for Shining. Like he was the guy who did the auditions for all the kid actors and stuff. Oh like, wow! Wow! He helped. Yeah, uh, I had no idea. Yeah, he helped uh, Arlie Emery for uh, Full Metal Jacket. Like he was the one to help train him, like uh, run his lines to get him the character to be the drill sergeant. So like a lot of Kubrick's films, this Vitaly guy is an essential part of his productions. But you don't really know about him because he was just kind of like a random gopher guy. That's really interesting. And the idea of like kind of giving, shifting your own vision to uh, seeing like a, something deeper in someone else's vision that you are okay with being a part of and not being the, you know, being the star. Or right. Yeah, that's cool. Right, because so many stories about people striking out on their own and creating their own vision. So it's interesting to see the opposite, where you have somebody who's like subsuming their own desires and aspirations saying, you know what, I want to be part of something bigger than me. Like it's almost like, almost like a religious impulse. Like I want to follow this person, this this art instead of making my own. Right. Like it's a hard decision for a lot of us to imagine. But like the film does a really good job of showing that why he did it, and why he doesn't regret doing it. Yeah, that's a nice uh, example of like suspending your ego a bit. Yeah, yeah. and it's just fascinating. Too. It's, there's a lot of like Kubrick minutia in that film. That's like if you know if you're into that, if you're into his work, it's definitely a, yeah. an interesting companion piece to it. Yeah, I will definitely look for that. Uh, do you want? We could see. You said you, you rediscovered something recently. I watched. Uh, there's a movie that I loved as a kid from the '60s called *Seance on a Wet Afternoon*. Do you know that movie? No, that's mm. a great. It's a great title. It's a great movie from 1964 uh, with Kim Stanley. She plays a housewife. Yeah. Kind of a working class housewife uh, in England who uh, reinvents herself as a medium, although she doesn't really have it. She's just trying to find a way to reinvent herself. Richard Attenborough's in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so she, they can, it's... Is it a comedy? Or? No, it's a psychological oh. thriller. Oh, okay. Uh, and they, <laughs> a bad medium, though, so it could be a whole other movie. Yeah. Uh, crappy medium. Yeah. Uh, so they concoct a plan to, to kidnap a rich person's child so that then she can therefore uh, find her, use her medium skills to, f to find her yeah. and, and prove uh, her abilities, but oh, okay. through this concocted ki kidnapping. Uh, and it, hmm. it kind of goes very awry, and it's, it's just really dark. And it was the first movie I remember seeing as a kid that I was just taken in by the, the bleakness mm. of the... 
the tone yeah. and the the setting uh, and then the storyline. So it's it's kind of bleak and, and dark yeah. and twisty neat. throughout. Yeah. But it's a, it's a really good movie. Kim Stanley, Richard Attenborough, 1964. Cool. Yes, like you said, great title. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I might even watch it again before the year's over. So. <laughs> well, hey, maybe we can get a movie night of it because that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Yeah, All movie night. Well, uh, we want to thank you for listening to this installment of Prizefighting Kangaroo. And also want to thank our production partners at Yabby Music and Arts. And, of course, a huge thank you to our sound engineer, Devin Morris. Thank you. The best of the best. <laughs> and a thank you to Apache Tattoo in Chandler for sponsoring this episode. For all your tattoo needs, Brandon at Apache Tattoo is here to help bring your ideas to life. I was wondering, uh, Amy, because I know you have quite a few tattoos yourself, do you have anything that's film-related? No. <laughs> I, wah, wah. I certainly don't, but it doesn't mean that I still can't, because until you fill up you know, every space of that canvas that is your body, you <laughs> can do whatever you want. Exactly. Exactly. There's always room for one more. <laughs> Get a PFK tattoo, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You, yeah. Could, you could. Yes, dear listeners, if you got a PFK tattoo, we will think very hard we're getting you something cool for that. Yeah, we would. Uh, <laughs> We might even let you come on the show. Just maybe. We'll see. Um, <laughs> I don't have any myself. Like, I have like two music tattoos and two book ones, but I don't have a film tattoo yet. If you got a film tattoo, do you know what it would be? Think on that, Devin, for a second. I do. Actually, years ago, I was going to get... Um, it's funny because Carly from Yabim was talking about Fellini earlier. Um, years ago, I wanted to get uh, a scene from La Dolce Vida tattooed on me. It was uh, the Anita Eckberg in the fountain scene. Oh, wow. But yeah, it just... It, uh, it just... It, it was... Didn't, this didn't feel right afterwards, yeah. so I decided not to do it. But that was the one that was the one image. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I would totally do that one. For me, if I ever do it, I think I'm gonna go John Woo and get the, get a face off tattoo. <laughs> and so on one arm, I'll have uh, Travolta, and one arm Nick Cage. Nice. Yes, so I'm thinking that. That'd be cool. That's be the tight. ultimate, right? Yep. Nice. Oh, that'd be amazing. Uh, probably, for me, it'd probably just be some 80s action film, like Terminator <laughs> 1 or something. <laughs> Maybe some RoboCop. Point Break? No, no Point Break. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the, the metal Terminator arm with the thumbs up. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I guess on that note... Um, yeah, I guess that that, that is a, a wrap. Uh, see you all in 2019. Ooh, Happy New Year. That's right. I'm Ashley. I'm Amy. And I'm Devin. Peace! Turn